Before we dive into this podcast with Andrew Usher, which is epic, I want to let you know it's my birthday this week. And to celebrate, I want to give you a discount off my courses. So to celebrate with me, I'm offering 40% off any single course and 20% off the course bundle, which gives you all four courses and the future courses uh, as they are updated as well. So there is the world-class conditioning course for combat sports, and that covers everything about the physiology behind the conditioning, why you're doing what, and how to plan that for your combat sports preparation. I also have the warrior strength course for combat sports, and that covers everything around how to structure and plan your strength training so you don't end up in the problems where you're just running bodybuilding or powerlifting programs, being sore, tired, not feeling like you have that explosive power um, that others may have. Then there's the uh, ultimate weight cutting course, and that's done by a friend of mine, Dr. James Moran, and he is the performance nutritionist for Rocky Fielding, and he has done a load of research in this area as well, which he shares in his course on weight cutting. It also runs through strategies that you can use um, leading into the fight, so starting further out when you're actually cutting weight slowly, and then the acute weight loss strategies that you can use and how to use them as you get closer to the fight. And then finally, we have my wife's course, Mona uh, DeLacy, and that covers the mental side of combat sports. Obviously, we can train as much as we want and have that physical uh, capacity to compete, but if you don't have that mental uh, performance side sorted, that's where you can run into problems. And often you see some fighters may gas up quickly early in a fight, and it's often not the physical preparation that was the problem. It's the fact that their adrenaline was too high, they were too hyped up, and they came to the fight and they had a huge dump in adrenaline and they end up gassing out early. And we see that every now and then as well. So Mona runs through a whole range of strategies that you can use, including a workbook that you can work through to help develop the mental skills on your own through a course. So again, it's 40% off any single course and 20% off the bundle. Just go into the description. There'll be a discount code there. It's going to be SSOFBDAY. So SSOFBDAY. B day. If you go down there, you can apply that to any of the courses, and all the links are in the description. But enjoy this episode again. But welcome to the Sweet Science of Fighting podcast. Today we have Andrew Usher. Welcome, Andrew. No, thank you for coming. Thank you very much for questions in my head already, and uh, I guess we connected through the Facebook group. So if anyone was listening to this and they listened to last week's episode with James Ramsey, he's the owner of the Facebook group. Andrew's also in this group, and I guess maybe let's start with. Uh, a bit of your background and maybe some of your PhD research, so then we can go ahead and cover essentially a bunch of range of questions. Yeah, so I, I can, uh, I'm, so I'm getting on in years. So I, I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, and East End of Glasgow, um, and we basically played footy, <laughs> which would be soccer, um, and we played, and we did boxing and boxing karate, and, and that was kind of really my love for combat sports. I was never that good at it, but I loved it. And then in my teens did Muay Thai, did a lot of boxing on tests of that, uh, and just that was it. But it wasn't until my late 30s when I had a straight blast gym affiliate training group that I started to really think about better ways to approach S&C and, and just basic training methods. Um, it kind of struck me pretty early on in the MMA world that 
we were doing things that coaches had done that had been taught by coaches and there was no real method or understanding about why we were doing it. So around about 35 was a big change for me. Um, at that time, my wife and I had a medical practice <clears> in, a, in a remote area. So my whole life was just became obsessed with anatomy, physiology and, and all that good stuff. And then in my 40s, kind of moved away from MMA back into kind of probably more boxing. Um, I still coach amateur and, and professional. And from probably the last seven years, been really heavy on research. Uh, Masters was looking at um, the underlying physiology of amateur boxing, looking at aerobic capacity and lactate thresholds and things. And the PhD is a world's first look at professional boxing using near-infrared spectroscopy to look at the difference between systemic and peripheral oxygen delivery at the muscle tissue and what that really means from a performance connotation. So that's kind of the PhD. We're in a really beautiful position at Aberdeen University in Scotland because, A, they let me do my PhD, which is a good start, and B, uh, they have made combat sports the sole research focus for sports and exercise science. So we will be doing predominantly our research is going to be down that route. I think we might be one of very few and definitely only university in Scotland that's, that's main reference, uh, research focus is combat sports. Um, from a private business there, I think I was in my private business, I work with Hannah Rankin, who's a kind of um, world champion uh, female boxer. I work with her, I'm her performance specialist. And I work with kind of numerous other athletes as well. And we do a whole range of serv services. I mean, guests, I refer to myself now as probably a performance yes. specialist in anything else because it's a mixture of everything from sports science, exercise phys to, to S&C. Awesome. And that's it. Generally quite boring, dull, and just live my life in a lab. That tends to be, that tends to be it. Like the sun's killing me. That's the exciting stuff. Do you want to maybe explain, because a lot of the listeners that would be kind of like your amateur, semi-pro, maybe some professional, but mainly fighters that maybe don't have a grasp of the sports science. So you want to maybe cover, you mentioned your PhD, you're, you're looking at the difference, uh, systemic versus, I guess, peripheral yep. oxygen uptake. Do you want to maybe dive into the details of yep. why that's important? Yeah. You know, what, what you're kind of looking at there? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things that kind of struck me probably watching a lot of sparring and having a lot of athletes compete was try to try get this idea of what's a rate limit or what's inhibiting performance. <clears throat> because we can get the strength right, we can generally get the condition right, although often I think that's one of the main issues. But the delivery mechanism of how they actually translate VO2 and oxygen, um, through, obviously through respiration or everything else, into the muscle tissue seems to be to me a limiting factor. And what we noticed when we started putting uh, near-infrared uh, sensors on the legs and things was that when there was a massive difference in what the, the kind of auction profile looked like in a spar session versus mm -hmm. pads and bags. So the, there was a clearly something going on. And the best way, probably the easy way to think about this is, as I always explain to athletes, is like we want to match the engine with the right chassis. So if you've got a Ferrari engine, you want a Ferrari chassis. And in that engine, there is all the fine tuning components. And that's what our PhD is. It's looking about how do we get fuel mm. to the muscle tissue? How does it extract that oxygen? And how does the muscle, muscle respond? Probably more importantly for me is, is how does the muscle tissue recover, especially between rounds? So we're kind of looking at that. And then we're looking at does biomechanics affect how oxygen delivery is, is performed to the muscle tissue via the capillary bed? You know, if I, as a boxer, heavy on the front leg, so therefore that leg is having to work much harder than the other leg, so therefore is a, a, a kind of difference in symmetrical value. And, and what you tend to find is, is that, that we, t we tend to think things in systemic terms, so we tend to think of cardiac output, yeah. stroke volume, all these types of things in VO2 max, but we tend to think less about what's yeah. the actual muscle doing. Because if you put if you put moxie sensors or portamon sensors on the the, the rec fem in the left and the right leg and you do back squats, 
those two muscles won't necessarily use oxygen at the mm. same rate. There'll be, there can be a slight difference in it. So that led me to think, well, why would that be? And then when you watch sparring, you see some fascinating things about recovery. How quick can the tissue desaturate and use oxygen? <clears> and how, how quick can it resaturate? And we'll start to find that athletes that are really well conditioned uh, use oxygen very quickly, have a nice like homeostasis through the middle and then resaturate really fast. And it, the profile is very similar between pads, bags, and sparring. Deconditioned athletes, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> it's all over the place. So, I, yeah, so I, our whole, whole big thing is, is, is really applied science and performance. How do we get recovery to be as optimal as possible? Um, because a lot of fights are won through that endurance component, especially your yeah. 10s and 12 rounders. Mm. You know, you get 36 minutes of work. Often, a lot of coaches are doing great work, but they're not actually thinking about the yeah. recovery kinetics and how that having a knock-on effect. <laughs> and we kind of specialise probably in the recovery you, kind of kinetics. You posted the other day about, we're conditioning about sparring, <clears throat> about potentially not preparing mm. boxes for, you know, I guess the demands of boxing. I think there was something like that. Do you want to maybe dive into that? You mentioned there now about pads versus sparring as well. Maybe deconditioned athletes maybe see a big difference in terms of how the muscles use oxygen and their recovery in those two different modalities. Yeah. So I think the interesting thing for me was that the idea of the PhD was to get an idea of what does the underlying physiology do in the different training methods? Because nobody's ever looked at it. Um, the amateur boxing has predominantly looked at VO2 max mm. and lactate thresholds, and that's about as exciting as it's got. That to me was quite boring. I wanted to know, well, what's the muscle tissue doing? Because at the end of the day, the, how that muscle is performing in that kinetic chain is, is really going to dictate how success and the mechanics are going to be delivered. So when we started looking at the pad work and the bag work, we started to see that bag work generally, athletes are not really got high enough volume and a high enough intensity. A lot of them are still very old school. They go in, the beepers yeah. on the three minute round, <clears throat> they go from one bag, then they go to the next. There's no intensity driving it. So there's no mitochondrial capacity change. So we noticed that straight off the bat. Then when you go into the pads, a lot of times you realize they're doing very low level technical work. They're not actually doing any intensity within the technical component either. So we start to see a different profile there. And then when you go into the ultimate expression, which is sparring, you see it's a completely different picture. So, but interestingly for us, and this is the thing that blows a lot of coaches' minds when we speak to them, the thing that probably represents sparring physiologically, and I mean from the muscle tissue action, more than anything else, are 30-second mm. Wingate tests. Because the muscle tissue yeah. has to desaturate a much quicker rate and resaturate. And that is closer to sparring than anything else, which is kind of mind-blowing. So it's led us down this path about is mitochondrial capacity the key factor in endurance and can we increase that in athletes across all three areas? And to do that, that would mean that athletes would probably have to have much more targeted bag sessions, pad sessions and spar sessions. Now, that's what I do with Hannah Rankin. That's probably been the success of her World Championship run. And that's what I've done with Dean Sutherland and the preparation for his WBC Silver run. And that's what's made the biggest changes is that changing conditioning from just being very ad hoc sessions to very targeted sessions to deliver mitochondrial capacity change. And that's, I think, where we get the biggest bang for buck. Because I think when you've got a good pro and they've had a good amateur, they know how to fight. They've, they've been there, they've done it mm. so many times. So when we get them, we put them through a whole series of tests. I mean, I could explain my whole testing yeah. process if you want, because it's probably yeah, yeah, slightly we'll probably different. Yeah, because probably more of an insight into kind so, of what you're doing and what you're looking at. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So the first thing I always 
every athlete that comes to the labs, we do a movement assessment. Okay, now that movement assessment is just years of attending different courses and stripping down what we think represents the best kind of sequence or kind of movements that represent boxing. But also, from my perspective, I'm looking at movement screening as a way of not are they passing tests, but how are they passing the test? What, 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 what are they yeah. doing to cheat the test? Because every athlete cheats it, right? So, because what we get a lot of times is you get an athlete comes in, it could be a UFC fighter, <coughs> they're an undisputed world champion, they bring the S&C coach in, the first thing we always go is, when was the last time did you do a movement assessment? And nine out of ten times, they'll never have done one. There's just never been screened for anything. So we do a very simple thing. We do like a toe touch. We do lunge testing. We do isometric nice. strength tests. We do a whole <laughs> heap of things. And we basically blueprint, are they able and capable to be doing deadlifting yeah. for a start? Things like this. Because nine out of ten times, we see a lot of asymmetrical issues that we can clean up. And so a lot of times, for example, they're, they're, when they're deadlifting, they're pulling most of the power through one side rather than two sides. You know, the usual stuff. So that's the first thing we do. We then put them through a, a whole series of testing, which is basically VO2 max tests. We don't tend to do the VO2 components much. We use the incremental yeah. treadmill test quite a lot. We do wing gate testing. We do upper-lower body strength tests on the isometric chair. Um, we then do force. We look at striking on the force platform. We analyze mm. striking mechanics and biomechanics. We do a bit of 3D movement assessment, and we just piece it all together. And what we're looking for is the consistency between the tests. And what we tend to find is most athletes come in a very poor, limited movement that's just never been picked yeah. up in S&C sessions. Um, we tend to find that the wing gates are showing very poor recovery, and there's a lot of cardiac drift between sprint one and sprint two. And the interesting kicker <laughs> for us is combat athletes, especially boxers, tend to have more force production in mm -hmm. their upper body than lower body. When we put them on the isometric chair and we do isometric strength testing, without a shadow of a doubt, wow. the upper body is always stronger <clears> than the lower body, which, blow it, which yeah. blows my mind, right? And then you turn to the S&C coach and go, you ain't doing legs <laughs> enough, are you? You know, and then you realise there's... It's right now, so people, people, people associate me and a big X landmine press, that I don't like landmine pressing. And the reason I don't like landmine pressing is I think it's overused. It's not that I don't like it. I just think it's very, very overused. And I think, you know, if you look at Seth's paper on that kind of biomechanics and yeah. the, the mixed methods paper on striking, you can clearly see lower legs all the way up, you know, deltoids last to activate forearm. So any athlete we work with, we're probably more heavier on leg work than we are upper body work nice. on strikers. <clears throat> uh, and we tend to find most athletes coming to us are the are opposite way around. They think everything yeah, is coming from sure. shoulders. They don't get, they have to deliver it through the chain. So that's kind of our testing process. So we do movement assessment, we do physiological testing, we may do VO2 max testing, we do NERS testing, um, and we do strength testing and force production testing because we want to see is all of it leading to the ultimate expression, which has been able to deliver force on the force plate. And then we'll maybe look at sparring data, we'll go grab sparring data, because that is where we see is all this stuff they're doing, is it translating to the spar session? And probably 60% of the time it does. Yeah. You know, they look good. They make weight okay. They're maybe sitting 12% body fat. They look pretty jacked, but it falls apart under specific. You know yourself, lab testing yeah. is a completely different beast. If I make an athlete do an all-out wing gate and they've never done repeated sprints at super maximal <laughs> level, they're going to struggle. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> which they all do. <laughs> you know, the the back door is littered with uh, food from people throwing up over the last six months of research. It's like it's a running joke. It's kind of we can normally identify people's dinner the night before after <laughs> yeah, after yeah, they're not, they're not easy. Um, but that that's that, that yeah, and that that's that's basically the testing process. And from that, we create a nice blueprint and we look at 
you know, is there cardiac drift? Is the recovery maybe not there? Are they lacking a little bit of strength in the legs? Generally, I don't do as much of the strength work as I used to do. I, I tend to feed that back to the S&C coach to be changed up. And we'll just give, give them some guidance on what we're kind of looking for. And then we'll normally do in a camp, in, a, in an eight-week camp, we'll do week one, probably week three, and then we'll maybe do week five or six, and we'll just do three testing sessions um, just to make sure things are actually moving in the right place. Um, I'm just a big lover of if we test it, we know yeah. something's changing. <clears throat> if we don't test it, we don't know if it's changing. For sure. Not. So it's pretty straightforward. It's nothing nothing rocket science, nothing really. I mean, the research is a bit more high-end because of what we're looking at, but the actual application, it gets distilled down into something pretty simple. Because you know yourself, I can't say to an athlete, go put this moxie on and tell me what your desaturation level is in 15 go, minutes. And they're going to fuck off. It's just not going to happen. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. And people tell me to fuck off all the time. So... Um, so it's a kind of a so it's a it's a highly physiologically driven route, but really we do all the heavy lifting the back end. You know, one of the big things I'm a, a massive you need to do this for us is heart rate monitor. Now it's, it's interesting because everybody does red zone training, but I think people fail to understand that the red zones are irrespective because athletes will get to peak heart rate very quickly. Right, that should be the on kinetics. We should be getting them there. It's how quick can they get out of it, and mm. how quick can they get back <clears> in it. That's gotcha. a more interesting tale when it comes to that that kind of physiological kinetic. So, so I, an average day for me is is Han will do a spar with heart rate monitor or moxie sensors. I'll get the data. We've written all the Python code. We will run it, and I'll be able to say, right, you're on track for where we need you to be. You're maybe off track. We need to change up some of your sessions, and, and that's it. It's, it's it's quite a seamless process. It's fucking taken years to make I can it imagine. that seamless, <laughs> um, to the point where. Yeah, because the data is, we are very data heavy and we have like, oof, probably a good 10 years worth of data now, um, which is good because we have a nice normalization database so we can benchmark most athletes now to where they should fit in with other people. <laughs> Not that that's yeah. a given because everyone's quite unique, but we have a rough benchmark of where we should be and and that's been it. And uh, the boxing world either likes what we do or it <laughs> fucking hates it. It's okay, hates yeah, it. Um, well, goes against tradition, doesn't it? <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I'm, a, I mean, I'm referred to as a legacy coach, which means I'm an old <laughs> fuck, because um, I'll be 50 this year. Um, but we are doing some good stuff. You know, we had really nice meetings with Gary Hutt from Team GB. Uh, we'll be down at Team GB lately to discuss the research and a few other things. So I think there's a nice move towards trying to understand yeah. what is performance, really, you know, rather than just this label at S&C, you know. Like everyone's a fucking yeah. S&C coach now, um, which, which pains me. <laughs> quite a lot um because a lot of times they come in and you just wonder what, what what's actually happening here um you know why are you holding your breath doing back squat and shit um why and, na- and nasal breathing nasal breathing is the other big thing that we have a lot of athletes come in they're telling me they'll do yeah, nasal breathing the, the new trend and i'm like you've, you've got two yeah and i'm like you've got two pipes in your mouth one's <laughs> fucking bigger than the other um breathe <laughs> so so we are a bit marmite I guess what we do some people like us some people don't like us um, but we're all about performance we just we, me my supervisor John Barry at Aberty John's 52 we, we just love this shit you know we just live for for performance <laughs> and you know making people better that's just no. we just love it you know even at our age we're, we're still awesome. not jaded yet because we, we think there's still a lot got, more to be found so. I've got a, so that's I've got a whole kind of lot of questions I'm going to see if I can remember them all but first you mentioned obviously uh, Seth Research, if anyone's interested, Seth wrote a blog post on how to throw a powerful jab on Sweet Science of Fighting. You guys can find that. That's really good. He breaks down some of his research there too, and I break down a lot of it and how to punch harder as well. And yeah. secondly, there's 
there's a whole lot of, I'm going to yep. start with maybe your sprint protocols and I'm going to come back to your oxygen connects in terms of recovery. But is this kind of where your sprint uh, power and endurance protocols kind of stemmed from, from the idea that a lot of the boxers aren't getting the intensity in their training. And this is kind of like your way of putting intensity within their training week. Yeah. So John, my supervisor, his whole last 20 years of research has been basically sprints and high intensity training. That's basically been John's work for the last 20 mm. years. Um, and when I started working with John last year, I was a bit unconvinced by it, to be brutally honest. I was still very much, we need a bit more volume yeah. in the training. Um, and then and then we started applying it to a lot of athletes and looking at the research and looking at what I was aiming to look at from systemic and peripheral recovery. And we started to pilot it and we started to get really good results. And I think you're right. I think what happens is people think they're doing high intensity. It's like the old days of the Tabata when it went <laughs> crazy. Nobody was exactly. fucking doing that stuff at the intensity level. That and if you want to know more about search, but, search you know, Tabata for fighters so... on Google and you'll find and you'll see <laughs> we talk about exactly that. If you're doing real Tabata, you're fucked by the end of yeah. it to the point where you're going to fall off the bike. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it did probably sell a lot of timers, though. <laughs> I mean, so from the timer market space, it sold a shitload. <laughs> so, we were, we were, so we were pretty much the same. So we, are, we, we know from the research that all you need is about 60 seconds worth a high super maximal effort, probably three times a week, nine sessions, and you're probably going to start <clears> to see some mitochondrial change. Now, it's too early to say this, but I'll kind of make a bold claim. One of the research projects we're, we're doing is looking at a non-invasive way to measure mitochondrial capacity through um, blood flow occlusion, NERS, um, doing like an incremental treadmill test and re-measuring. And we're seeing that the sprint training is definitely increasing mm, mitochondrial okay. capacity. So <clears throat> that's a good thing because we obviously have more ability to create ATP, blah, 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 blah. So, so for us, sprints is integral. Now, sprints to us is, is not just running or bikes, but it's how you use the bag. So, for example, Hannah, we have on very specific bag sessions. So she might do 20 seconds all out, 10 second recovery, and she'll maybe repeat that for one round. Or sometimes we'll mix it up. We'll do 20 seconds on, you know, 60 seconds off, 30 seconds on, 50 seconds off, and we'll just yeah. start to do undulating. So we, we mix up the protocols. But basically, the, for us, the discovery, it's not a discovery, it's <laughs> in the research. Um, there's a lot out there. Supra maximum is where you need to be to get those fast adaptive changes. Mm -hmm. So we, we just, I'm a, so I'm a big believer, which is why the <laughs> world hate me. Um, I'm a big believer that te that technical skill is, is part yep. of it. Boxers need to box. Right. MMA fighters I'm need to be able to fight thing. MMA. That is the, that's the, at the end of the day, that's, <clears> yeah. So that's it, right? So, so we need to, we need to fix everything around about that ultimate outcome. That, that's what we need to do rather than spend endless hours doing S and C stuff. Yeah. It's probably getting no transfer. So sprint size is very sport specific. It can be. But it's also it's also very low time wise. So they can come into a sprint session and then still in the afternoon go into their technical pad session. Mm. It doesn't really interfere too much. Because <coughs> the kickback initially was you cannot have kids fucking do super maximal sessions mm -hmm. three times a week. Yeah. And we were like, why not? Nobody's dying from it. Right? <laughs> Nothing labs died. And the response was good. And the reality because the reality is it's sixty seconds of work. It could be three twenty second sprints. Or it could be six, 10 second sprints with a massive delay between them. You can mix this up any way you want as long as you get mm, roughly okay. 60 seconds of super maximal work. So mm. for us, it's, it's very, you can play with it in the schedule. And all the athletes that we have that are doing exceptionally well in recovery metrics are all doing these high intensity mm. super Is it something you do year round then? Or is, and or is this kind of like after maybe, yeah. I don't know, 
GPP phase or whatever it is, and you do this maybe after that, or are you doing this hey, all year round, we're, we're, we're hitting the 60 seconds, you know, in a session or a week. <clears throat> so, yeah. So we are, we're big on having athletes train 52 weeks of the year uh, and sitting at roughly out of camp between 5 and 7% above fight weight max. Yeah. So we like our athletes to be ready for a lot of reasons. One is it's just good self-management. Yeah. Two, there's no crazy weight cuts. And three, because of COVID, opportunities are everywhere. So the, the more able you are to get into fight camp and even a shortened one, the better. That's kind of played very nicely into the sprint protocols mm. because we can get people's conditioning back relatively quickly on the sprint protocols. So so what we'll do is, is John's been doing these fucking in the lab for 10 years, hasn't he? So he's, he's churning out like 1,200 watts at 52 nonstop and stuff. Um, maybe not as much as that. I think he's dropped to 800. Um, but we, 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 but we do sprints all the time. So, um, so we'll, we'll be in their schedule twice a week. They'll do sprints for me. Uh, and they all hate it. I mean, if Anna was on the podcast, she would be swearing at me all day. Um, she absolutely, dis- she, I mean, but the interesting thing for her is, and we're talking about this with the other day, actually, cause we had looked to bring in a different kind of protocol to her and she, she was like, I'm not so keen on it. Let's change it back. And she said to me as much as I hate the bike. She goes, mentally and psychologically, it gives me something that other things don't give me. Those super maximal mm. efforts really take me to a dark place that I have to get through them. So psychologically, I think it's it provides the athletes a, a difficult week every yeah. week. Um, but they get through it. And so, yeah, so, so we're pretty much, I think, we've not seen any detriment to it. Um, we may have, we, we won't obviously do them in a taper. So the last two weeks of yeah. fight camp, we won't do them. So we will take, so actually it's not 52 weeks, <laughs> yeah. it'll be maybe 48 weeks or whatever, or, or 40 weeks depending, actually, I think about it. But but pretty much we're doing them all the time. But we like to do other things as well. Like I like athletes on a Monday, rather than do long, steady state runs, I like, you know, a good fast 5K. So we will have them do a 5K run. So most of our athletes will do a 5K sub 20 minutes, Damn, probably anywhere from 16 minutes to about 18 minutes, 12. Yeah, <clears> they often <throat> do it. Um, and they like it because it's a challenge. We'll get a massive leaderboard of athletes all around the world in these these 5Ks. It's a fat old bloke. I can knock it a 5K in 21 minutes. So <laughs> yeah. there's no excuse for an athlete. And it's right. And it's like a sprint. And it's and I like to do them on the Monday because it's a nice, because um, we used to use yeah. HRV and stuff and I've went away from that. But this is a nice wellness metric. Because mm, gotcha. after 5K is, is 18 minutes and then one week it's dropping off to 23, you're kind of like, you know, were you partying at the weekend? What's happened? What's changed your stats? I was sparring at the weekend. Because a lot of my a lot of my athletes are quite remote. Yeah. <clears throat> so everything we do is probably get a bit of speed and pace on it. Mm. Uh, we encourage, encourage. If an athlete likes to run, I don't have a problem. With it. Um, some of our athletes, like Hannah, Hannah likes to be in the altitude chamber. She likes to do her runs in there. That's fine to have a problem with. It. Um, I just don't want athletes doing ten miles every three days of the, you know, every three days. But yeah. I want. Want a bit more sport. I'd rather they be in gym working in technical work. Yeah, yeah. You know, rather than spending maybe a two-hour <clears> run. <throat> so, so, so yeah. So we are we're fast on it. You've added more questions so, into my head. Yeah. I'm going to try and remember them all. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> let's, let's. I'm like a bigger rabbit. I know. <laughs> okay. Let's let's start here where we are now. Then about about the running with intensity. So, are you then banking on the technical mm. sessions to hit that lower intensity? I guess aerobic work because I guess. In my mind, I'm thinking, okay, we're doing we're doing speed, I guess, 5K. Yeah. That's still aerobic and stuff like that. And obviously, you're doing the sprints. But then to say we're yeah. looking at maybe physiology and to say we're looking at maybe um, eccentric hypertrophy of the heart, um, I guess, 
you're still getting a lot, I guess, a lot of that stuff from the stuff, but I guess if you're targeting really low intensity work, that's not going to maybe bleed into fatigue for technical training. Is that fit somewhere in your, I guess, in your weak model or is it more, okay, technical training takes care of that. I'm just taking care of intensity. Yeah. So when we started in the research, we started to realize <clears throat> that most of the technical training was in that kind of low, probably 120 to 150 heart rate okay. range. It was really in that kind of slow cardiac output range. So the, so the problem we identified pretty early on was that that was the issue. Do you know that people are fucking lazy? <laughs> so people won't do balls to the wall, super maximal bag session. Yeah. So that was, that actually was the component that was missing. People think because people think they're working hard until you actually monitor it and actually <clears> look <throat> at what is the kinetics, how quick are they getting to peak heart rate and how quick is that peak heart rate coming down? And is it a slower fast phase of recovery until you do that? Yeah. You don't know. You're just assuming that they get up to 180 beats, they stop. 60 seconds later, they've dropped 40 beats and you're like, fucking brilliant. Well, what we've got with Hannah Rankin is, is she can drop 79, 80 beats at round 10 in sparring and recovery wow. standing. Right, so she can drop massive and she's got a very, really super nice um, fast phase of recovery and then a slow at the end, which is kind of what we want. So unless you look at it and you know how to analyze it, a lot of times you're just doing things because it, it looks good, but you've got no quantifiable way of measuring how, how hard yeah. are they actually training. So... So even in even in the gym in Aberdeen, uh, David McAllister's up at Northern Sporting Club, where we work with the pros and stuff, the bag sessions are all heart rate monitored. So <clears> everything's <throat> monitored. So we know if these kids are not working hard and they have very targeted thresholds they need to hit in those sessions. Because we know a lot of times when they're in doing their S&C, it's just that low zone. You know, if they're on the concept two row, they're probably <laughs> just fucking around. They're not, they're not going crazy on it. So the, the issue for me is when we physiologically test them, we can see what the recovery is like. And that gives us an indication of, you know, <clears throat> um, what VO2 is like, what VO2 kinetics is like, what oxygen kinetics is like and how that relates. Because the interesting thing about boxing is, is you don't need a massive aerobic capacity to be successful. Interesting. Right? If you look at the research and, you, and I did a systematic review of this, which needs to, we need to publish this. At yes, we need to think this. Um, <laughs> but I've done, looked at the data over the last 27 years. And <clears throat> when you look at the VO2 max, it goes from 2003, the Kravitz paper, pretty low, about 43 milliliters per kilogram per minute. And the highest end within a yeah. paper is about 65. And that's in world-class amateurs, right? So you're looking 25 years worth of data, 43 to 65, 66. That's not massive. Most sit about yeah. 55 to 60 zone, right? So that's the aerobic capacity you need to be a world-class amateur at Olympic level. So we kind of looked at that and we thought, okay. And then we looked at um, lactate thresholds in the research and basically just more or less says what you'd expect. Boxers need to tolerate yeah. high millimoles of lactate. So, so that's it. So you look at that, you think, well, how much steady state running do they really need to do then to develop that? If that's the zone that, you know, and we've had world undisputed champions and there's some of the worst fucking VO2s on the planet, but yeah. still undisputed, right? Because the reality of the sport is, is that it's just one of these sports that you could have the most, you could have an athlete that's got the shittiest plan on the planet, but yeah. it's still knocking people out. Because there is a variable you can't factor in, which is the actual combative bit in the ring. So it, it's a, we don't know what that is. But so what we're, what we're doing is trying best to prepare for all of it. So when we looked at that, we thought, well, all these long steady state run-ins are probably not giving us any yeah, more gotcha. than we're, what we're going to get. So what, so what we did to, so to quantify it, I thought, fuck it. Let's, let's take some kids, really look at that side and see what the VO2 change is. And let's take a percentage of other athletes and we'll do portable gas analysis. And we'll do pads, bags, 
and we'll look at what VO2 peak is or what, what substrate utilisation looks like. And it's just like you expect to see, early rounds, predominantly fat oxidised, heavier rounds, more carbohydrate utilisation, so theoretically it's a mixed substrate. Okay, intensity yeah. is driving substrate utilisation, just basic physiology in a nutshell. So when we looked at this, we thought, okay, so what is the most important metric we can give these kids to be successful? And it's recovery. Because if they recover between the rounds, obviously they're more cognizant, they can take instruction better, but they can, they can last longer and they can have much more explosive power, they can push off the back foot, they can drive more. So for us, that was it really, and that's why we went down that route. So, so mm -hmm. less on the cardiac output, because generally they're lazy and they're not <laughs> training super maximal, so a lot of times they're getting it. But if they want to run because they feel like they need to do it, which some of them do need to do it because they're just like, I need to run, I don't have a problem with it. Because it's not giving us anything extra, but it's not taking anything away yeah. either. Unless they're picking up musculoskeletal injuries in the ankles and stuff like that, overturning or overturning. Yeah. If that's an issue, then we'll rein them back. So conscious of what people believe, I'm not anti <laughs> Um I'm just, I'm just like, because <laughs> people fucking think, think I hate running. I mean, I've seen this in forums and fucking Facebook posts, that cunt doesn't like running, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> You know, I've run all my life. I run a lot. So, I mean, I run 100Ks and all that stuff. I mean, I like running. Um, but I just don't think it's good for performance. I think when, if you're taking most of your week is, is taken up with running and you've got no time for S&C or technical, then you should be questioning yeah. why you're doing that <clears throat> amount of running. Because at the end of the day, you're not, you're not an ultra runner. You know, you're, you're, you know, I mean, I joke with most of the lads that we have. I go, like, if this career goes south, you could probably be a professional <laughs> park runner and do your 5Ks at the weekend and win some titles. Yeah. So, but so, so that's kind of our approach. Our approach really is more about the yeah. delivery and the applied side. So, um, so that's why, I, you know, yeah, if that answers no, the ramble. Uh, James Ramsey obviously posted my "Stop Doing Roadwork" article in the Facebook group, and that obviously got a lot of people up. That, I mean, that article was geared towards, like, I, I, I try and write myself more towards the amateur fighter who's maybe only training three, four, five times a week in their sport. And um, my my viewers, you know. Don't waste your time doing that for conditioning. If you're only training three, four, five times in the gym, you need to lay a more technical stuff on if you want to get better. So obviously, similar things to you yes. there. But I wanted to dive into as well. Yeah, yeah dive into as well. For someone listening, how can they measure their max heart rate easily? Maybe it was just a heart rate monitor. And then looking at those kinetics, for example, maybe they want to measure after listening to this, how quickly they can get to max heart rate, then how quickly they can recover. Is I guess is there any protocol or something they can do or use to kind of measure that themselves easily? Um, I would just say, just start wearing it in pad sessions, bag sessions and spar sessions and just start to look at the, the difference between them and look at the, you know, the, the 60 second recovery point. Just look at, rather than just look at, you've hit 184 and you're dropping to like 144, look at the curve. So what we do is we run exponential curve fit. Okay. So what we will do is, is run fancy linear regressions in the back yeah. to find out what the true mathematical predicted curve of rate of decay is, and we map it off that, right? But you don't need to do that. You could just look at the curve. If you've got a really nice linear curve and you've got, you know, you're doing well, if you've got a very long protracted slope, mm, okay. you're not doing so well. So what you're looking for that 60 <laughs> seconds is a nice initial fast recovery. So a nice fast slope down and then a slower slope. And that's the easiest way of doing it. So we have all the lads, so everyone does it. Hannah, all the females, males, all our athletes, I respect to the backgrounds, just heart rate monitor, get on the polar flow and just look at your data afterwards and think to yourself, how hard was that session? And then look at it <laughs> and then look at how quick did it take to get your peak heart rate? So you look at the curve up and you go, okay, so it took me maybe, you know, 
50, 60 seconds before I got there on a three-minute round. So you're like, mm, you may want that a bit quicker. And then look at the recovery and see how, how long into your 60 seconds were your recovery. And you'll see often with deconditioned, they've not mm. fully recovered. So look at the baseline of where you start. So if you're starting at 130 beats, and then you do your first round of spar and your first round of bags, then look at, well, where am I now? Have I, have I went back to baseline or am I slightly above baseline? <clears throat> if you're above baseline, how far above baseline are you? Because you want to get within a nice probably 10, 15% margin. So and that's the easiest way of doing it. And then you can start to trend it and get a feel for how does that compare to a 5K run? Is a 5K run like a heavy spar session? Is it like a bag session? And start quantifying <clears throat> the mind. Because um, one of the things we do a lot with the boxers is, <clears throat> especially with the moxie stuff, <clears throat> excuse me, is use it as yeah. a biofeedback tool. So in between rounds, they'll come over. We'll look at the day and go plenty in the tank. And a lot of times they'll know there's plenty in the tank and a lot of times they'll be like, fuck, I feel fucked. And you're like, no, no, you're just, you're just <laughs> being shite this today. Just get back out there. You're, you're okay. And the same in bag sessions, we'll do this. So a lot of times if we have an athlete that doesn't know when they're peaking, what we'll do is I'll have them do a bag session and I'll say to them, when you peak or you feel like you're at max heart rate, just step away from the back. Okay, if, if you reach peak without stepping away from the back, I'm going to tap you on the shoulder and you're going to step back and we're going to get you back to baseline recovery. Then you're going to go back in. And by doing that over a period of months, they start to know when they're mm. starting to peak in a spar and when they need nice. to pull it back, when they need yeah. to break away, get a little bit of relaxation, let their muscles relax. So we do a lot of like probably sports psychology work as well. And we bring in, but we do other things as well. Like we'll make them do complex mathematics <laughs> to hit in spar sessions on the yeah. bag. So we'll do, you know, like we'll set the combinations. One is two is a jab cross, three jab cross, whatever. And we'll go like 20 minus 17 plus six minus four plus two minus one is, and they have to resolve it whilst keeping heart rate. So we do a lot of all that type of stuff as well. A lot of cognitive drilling, um, just because we want in the recovery round, especially the kids that are on like elite boxing group level and compete nationally, we want them to be able yeah. to hear commands and be able to process those commands while sparring. Because I think that's something that's missing from the sport as well, is that corner <clears> delivering commands and the athlete being able to recognise the command and then change the gameplay and do task relevant cues. So we do that with heart rate as well. So they change their game plan. If they feel like they're, they're peaking, they know through all the biofeedback stuff that they need to go back to a much more defensive, break away from the centre of the line, kind of just relax. When they feel good, mm. go back in and re-engage. And we just basically always teaching them how to recover. So there's an absolute load of stuff you can do at Harvard yeah. that people just don't tend to do. They just put it on, go for a run and go. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's state carrier. Because they've got, they are, yeah, yeah, polar, <laughs> you bastard. Um, so um, the thing is, is like, you know when the box and you know when they hit the bags, if you know what the max heart rate is, and you want a really hard session, you want to push into that zone and back away from that zone. Get yourself back down. Push into that zone, back away. That's how you develop recovery. Mm. You develop that kind of response to allow you to relax, that diastolic That's going to be my next question. <laughs> but if you don't train that way, you're... Yeah. yeah. If you don't train that, you're never yeah. going to get it. You know? And, <clears> and a lot of boxing and high-level boxing is in the game plan is really about that. How do you change the game plan if things are going shit, which they will go at some point? How do you relax? How do you recover between the rounds? And are you going to be as fresh in the later rounds? Especially when you look at super bantamweight, bantamweight, there's not a lot of knockouts in those fights. Mm. They, a lot of them go the distance. Yeah. And when they start moving through their, through their, their journey, they go from the four rounds, to the six rounds, the tens, to the twelves. You want to make sure that, you know, they're just as fresh as what they are, you know? So... So for us, it's all about just constantly monitoring everything. We, we monitor mm. everything. It's, it amazes me when you get world-class athletes come to us to the labs and you go, do you bring your heart rate monitor? And they go, we yeah. don't have one. I'm like, really? 
I'm like, you're not measuring anything. They go, don't measure anything. <laughs> yeah. You're like, fuck. Yeah. It just blows my mind. But then yeah. that's my bias. So that, that's something Would I have you, to do with. That's let's take, bias. for example, say an amateur amateur fighter listening to this. Maybe he was only boxing four times, three, four times a week, and he's preparing I don't know, local events or whatever. Would you then still, okay, would you go yep. sprint protocols is what you should do, even though maybe you're not getting that aerobic work from the technical side because you're only in there maybe three, four times a week? Or would you, or would the approach slightly change just because they're not training as much as the professional fighters that you have? So amateurs, we will have them on sprints. <clears throat> uh, we would sometimes get them to the sprints after mm -hmm. our technical work. So we'll let them get the technical work out of the way and then we'll say, like, just jump on the assault bike and just... Because for us, it's about what is driving recovery is probably mitochondrial yeah. capacity. And the, the more mitochondria you can you can have, the more you're going to produce energy. So therefore, the more you're going to potentially recover, the more you're going to be able to produce more work. So for yeah. us, it's all about developing that. And we know that one of the benefits of repeated sprint intervals is it's a very fast mm. way of getting it. You can obviously get it through other ways as well, but for us, it's just a very easy <clears> thing. <throat> And it's an easy sell after they've done their pad work and stuff gotcha. and just go, right, just jump on the bike, just give me 20 seconds on the assault bike, 10 seconds off, three of them, and you can go home. And generally, they're pretty receptive to it because they're like, okay. And it's like covert stealth kind mm. of mitochondrial capacity development. And because if they're only in three times <clears> a week, then you're very limited. You know, your exposure time is limited. How do you get your S&C yeah. factored into that? Um, this, is, this is the problems with amateurs a lot of times. Uh, as well as uh, some things like we negate some of the strength work as yeah. well at times. Um, but it is a challenge. But it can be a challenge with pros as well. A lot of pros don't want to do the S&C side. <laughs> yeah. sure. They just want to do pads, bags. Yeah. It's the same in every sport. You know, so I think it's a challenge we all face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. I have a harder way. We work a lot with kind of um, BMX downhillers. And they don't yeah, want to do s at all. That um, is what <laughs> they're like what's the point yeah. and you're like well you know you could push harder you could probably you know you could kill yourself probably in a quicker time um <laughs> you have a bit more power on the legs um so yeah it is difficult but <clears throat> but amateurs i think i think amateurs is difficult as well i think amateurs got a lot of other issues as well like the weight making the weight especially fighting multiple times per day and this is one of the things that we are really interested in the recovery for amateurs is, is like a lot of our kids when they're at box cups and stuff are maybe fighting twice or three times a day well, in that format so we do a lot of carbohydrate periodization with them as well mm. nutritionally to make sure they're fueled and that we're getting that nice recovery as well because i think it's a intrinsic tie there with kind of another side of the, the sport that i think is misunderstood as is the nutrition side and the periodization mm. in that as well so we, we do a lot one of the benefits are having a university that specializes in applied science strength conditioning nutrition and psychology as we have it all under one roof so nice. it's like it's like the gift that keeps on gift giving, you know. So the athletes that come to us are, are pretty lucky. We have a, a we're building a sponsorship program at the moment where, if you're an athlete and you don't have funds for all this stuff, you know you can come to us. We will put a program together, and our fourth year students will deliver the program mm. for you, so you can get effectively free S and C, and the students are getting free oh, that's exposure. Really good. At how to deliver programs multidisciplinary and that's something we're doing in, out, you know, in the Dundee area, which is quite quite important. Is we want to bring in athletes and say, look. You know, everyone can benefit. Students need to learn what's going to be like in the industry outside uni because it's a completely different world. Yeah. And athletes need something a little bit more and often they can't afford, you know, what we do. So this is a, a good bridge between both worlds, I think.
Oh, I think you're back. You dropped out for a bit. That's no, okay. Um, yep. Okay, hang on. That <laughs> drop out. I had so much on my head. Now it just now it just disappeared. It disappeared from me. I had like <laughs> how many other questions based on what we, what we were covering there? Shit. Um, oh man, now I can't even remember what I was going to ask. But what were we just covering? We we're just covering. We're talking about. I, I think I mentioned we're good to offer SNC to athletes that can't can't afford it or don't have access to it, come to the uni, the fourth years will deliver it, which is a good learning experience for fourth year students yeah. and the SNC programme degree. Ah, to this is what coach, I had. Which is good. Before that, we'll now, now I remember, in terms of the yes. mitochondrial capacity, this might be a little uh, yes. science-y for maybe some of the amateur fighters that are into this, but I, I want you just, I guess just for myself as well, do, do you know uh, the mechanisms behind, I guess, creating new mitochondria in terms of from this, from I guess from sprint exercise and even from low intensity exercise. Obviously, as you mentioned, there's multiple ways to do it. So there's obviously potentially multiple mechanisms to yeah. that, or do they kind of all run through the same mechanism? <clears throat> it's kind of your mitochondria has, has biodiversity and biogenesis, so it can replicate anyway, move around. So it's there. But what we know is is that 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 high um, kind of physiological load creates obviously physiological strength, and you get kind of the adapt mechanism. So the body has to adapt to that stress level. And, and by pushing more blood through into the tissue and we're getting kind of much more, uh, the, the oxygen's kind of diffusing, coming through the capillary bed, going into the muscle, being extracted, that what happens there is it provides more nutrients, more nutrients creates biodiversity, allows the mitochondria to move around and kind of regenerate. So you start to get much more development. That's probably mm. the easiest way of thinking about it with looking at cellular biology. But so, so to get that, you know you need a massive stimulus. You need a stimulus to create some kind of oxygen change to allow the muscle to go, look, we need fuel, give us fuel, use the fuel, and then refuel the fuel tank up. And just high intensity does that. It just puts the body under enough physiological stress and load that the body has to adapt and change slightly to, to accommodate that. It's, like, it's just like any training thing. It's like hypertrophy work. It's like you need that stimulus for the body to respond yeah. and then repair, recover, and remodel. It's similar at the biochemical level. What's happening here is, is the mitochondria is getting a deep enough stimulus. It's getting enough more. So you're starting to kind of create more kind of, kind of biodiversity and biogenesis. You're creating more mitochondria. And in turn, that obviously can take the oxygen, bring it in, and go through oxidative phosphorylation and all that kind of stuff. And we get more ATP okay. generation. So that's it kind of nutshell so it's just just comes out of stimulus it's just like everything it's about getting the right load the right volume the right intensity it's just i guess it's just like in a lot of ways it's just like classic yeah. lesson scene it's just that whole thing about the right amount of stimulus to provide the right amount of result um too little you don't get anything too much you know you start to yeah. suffer as well I was, I was so say, it's just there, finding the sweet spot do you, I guess, on, how much is too much of this because obviously as you get into the more acidic environment you're kind of you're kind of doing the opposite of what you want in terms of creating your mitochondria so is there, I guess, yeah. is, is it the interval length is too yeah. long or is it the total time spent in that heart rate zone? I think it's probably, <clears throat> I think what happens is, there's, there's a couple of ways of looking at this. One is it's very difficult to maintain super maximal sprints. So you're going to start to see a drop off in power pretty mm. quick. So probably, so we do, we, we in the lab, we test classic wing gates. We do 30 seconds, one minute yeah. recovery. With athletes, I'll do... 10 seconds, 80 seconds recovery, and we'll do that six times because we, we can get enough recovery to get super maximal effort. So the problem would be that it'd be very difficult to maintain super maximal work without yeah. fatigue coming in, and then that would have a massive knock yeah. on technical skill. 
So you would you would pretty much spot it. Um, I, I think and we would spot it pretty much quick. So for us, it's about 60 seconds of work split yeah. for one session. So it's like when they come in the Monday, they're doing their 60 seconds. They can do it any way they want to do it, but they have yeah. to feel like they're dying at the end of it. That's that's it. If they think they're dying at the end of it, it's worked. Um, a lot of times in the past, when you leave athletes alone, you find that it, they weren't mm. probably hitting Supra, which is why we make them all wear a heart rate monitor so we remotely we can access it and go, that was not a super maximal effort. You need to, and then likewise, we had a lot of athletes who were overtraining with that got greedy thinking they could do six days a week at super maximal. And we had to rein that back and say, look, why are you spending so much time there? It's like, we need mm. this just into three sessions, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, whatever you want to do. And the other interesting thing is, is there's no rhyme or reason to it. So you can have a 24 hour separation. You could have a 72 hour separation between it. You could have slightly longer, as long as you get in roughly about three to six minutes of super maximum work per week, you're, you're golden with it. It's, it's like for whatever reason, it doesn't seem to impede mm. adaptation too much, which is kind of interesting. Um, so you can be pretty flexible. So you could do it post pad work, you could do it post bag mm. work. <clears throat> you can fit it in pretty much anywhere. It's, it's pretty easy. We do the bike. I mean, you can run, we use the bike. The reason I use the bike, especially a walk bike, is I can track the stats, I can track the metrics, yeah. but it takes a lot of load. It reduces the load in the joints. Yeah. So, so, and you don't need a lot of skill to ride a bike. Yeah. You know, Hannah's Rankin's favorite term is you ride the bike like you're stolen. <laughs> so, um, you just go. So it's pretty, so it's pretty forgiving, which is why we like to use the bike. Assault bike's quite tricky. Um, uh, I think because a lot of people use the arms more on the legs in subsequent sprints. Mm. So you start to see a massive drop off in power on the, on the assault bike. I like the assault bike, but a lot of times I'll make them put their hands behind <laughs> yeah. the, the back and make them only use their legs and go for a super maximum uh, to make that happen. Um, but yeah, it can be pretty forgiving, but the adaptations are pretty quick and it just all comes down to kind of creating much more mitochondria in the tissue. Once the muscles get more mitochondria, more energy can produce. We have not found any issues to do with kind of CO2 or any of that type of stuff or kind of acidosis or all those type of things because we're not working yeah, that long. Yeah, that's short. Is a very short window. Yeah, so it's okay. not a big issue for us. Uh, so, I guess on your, I'll, I'm going to link your uh, sprint protocol into the description of this podcast. So if anyone's interested, Andrew's put, basically put together a little PDF and it's got all those different sprint protocols for bike, uh, bag work, and I think running. But on there, you've got power and endurance examples yeah. for each one. I guess if I was reading that as someone who's maybe just preparing for a local event or whatever, how do I know which one I should touch on? So if your recovery is not good, um, you're going to want to do the endurance if you're looking to, to max out power. So say, for example, you want a bit more power <coughs> on a sprint, you'll just do the power one. So if you think about you're on, the, you're on a watt bike and you want to increase your wattage from, say, 600 watts to 700 watts, you're going to want to do the power one. So you need a bit more time between the sprints to recover. And that just makes common sense if you think about it. If you do a full maximal sprint, the more recovery period between it, the better that next sprint is going to be. So you're going to produce yeah. more power. So that's, that's basically in a nutshell. If you want to recover, and the aim is to recover very quick, you want a much shorter interval between it because you want to encourage the body to enter that nice relaxed phase and, and get that, that kind of recovery. So if you are looking for to increase like a run time, you probably want to do a bit more power work. If you're looking to have much better recovery between sprints, you'll just do the endurance protocol. <laughs> They're probably not the right aims for them, to yeah. be honest, but we put it together. We actually, to be brutally honest about this protocol booklet, has been the bane <laughs> of my life, this thing. Um, it came about because we did a two-day conference and people asked yeah. for sprint protocols. And to be fair to us, we hadn't really thought there would be that much interest. <laughs> so I was like, fuck. Um, so 
So it got put together and it morphed and I had to cut it short because we had, we've got loads and loads of protocols. And I thought this PDF could be a hundred pages long and stuff. So, we'll, so we've released it as it is. I think it's like, I can't remember how many pages yeah. it is. There's quite a lot. Yeah. I think it's like 10, 12 pages of different sprint protocols. But, but what we probably will do is maybe do a video series or a webinar series or do something and we'll, we'll show nice. how we do it in the lab, what we're actually looking at, what the data looks like. And then we'll, uh, that's going to be what we're probably going to put some CBD modules or something together. Because I think it makes more sense when you see it in context, when you see the data and you can take an athlete and say, this is week one, mm. this is week six, look at the difference in recovery between the two and this is what it's given you. Because um, I think otherwise you just look at it and you think, fuck, 10 seconds on the bike, 20 seconds <laughs> off, really? Is that it? Um, it? It doesn't really embody the suffering that you need to undergo in yeah. order for that to happen, which is quite substantial. So if you're using the sprint protocol, you have to think it's... Yeah. It's like your life depended on it. You are having to go yeah. all out. And it's funny in it because I see, you go to a gym, like it's got a lot of walk bikes and I love the walk bike. I've got a couple of them myself. And I watch people on the walk bikes and I think, you're not really pushing that that particularly hard. <laughs> and then you see somebody that is pushing it really hard and you just feel for them. You're doing well to do. Um, because it is, it, is a, it is something else. People, we have, we've had some of the best you know, UK boxing come in, some some world class, come to our labs and do wing gates. And so we do the lower, we do obviously sprint lower body, so the bike for, for that, and we do the upper body arm crank. And the arm crank is worse than the lower body bike sprint. I mean, that arm crank is like horrific on a sprint. But when they all come in, they all look at the bike and think, yeah. it's going to be a piece of piss. Uh, and then they do it, and then they just look at you like you've, you've just <laughs> abused them for 60 seconds of their life. Um, and then you make them do the arm crank one and they, that sets when they usually yeah. vomit out the back door. And it's kind of, it's, it's interesting because you say to them, look, you know, that's just 20 seconds of work three times. Yeah. It's just, it's nothing much. To, <clears throat> and then it's trying to get them to understand what they perceive as intensity from a sports scientist's point of view is not what mm. you class as intensity. You know, and I know people hate me for saying that, but a lot of boxers think they're training hard, but they're not training hard the right yeah. way. You know, and, and when we make that shift, things get, the needle gets moved in a really interesting way, which is, which is what I'm all about. But how do we push the needle the other way? You know? Yes. It's, it's, it's funny. I love it. People <laughs> hate me when, I, when I had uh, a few years ago with, with my rugby team, that's exactly how I explained when we got to our high intensity work in the preseason was, preseason was after, after the very first rep, you should feel like you don't want to do any more. You should just be done. But obviously we had, you know, three reps in yeah. that, in that series. And that's just has to be, that's the intensity it needs to be you know, for us to get what we want out of that session. And you know, that work, it works when you, when you explain it like that, like you should be dead after the first one. They go, ah, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. how do you find people? Do you find them pretty compliant? Yeah. Like King yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. Do you find that? I mean, of... especially in sport in yeah. sports like rugby that often have a tradition of just beating the hell out of them, like all the time. Um, a lot of, like some of the players don't yeah. like, but most players like they enjoy, especially when it's, especially when you've got to a point where you've done all the basic beforehand and they understand why, and they know, okay, it's only going to be for these sessions kind of thing. And it's leading into the season now. So for them to get a little bit of that, that extra stuff in, so that was like, they, they responded well to that. And, and we do it like with wrestle and stuff like that. So it was a little different in terms of, um, like they would do it with a partner, you know? It it's kind of funny because <clears throat> there's been a couple of quite big name athletes we've worked with that really didn't like the feeling of their heart rate 
going beyond, say, like so 160 how do they beats. Compete? So all their training. <laughs> wow, that that's the bizarre <laughs> thing. It's I mean, some of these some of these guys are really good Brazilian yeah. jiu-jitsu fighters, and you're kind of like. But your heart rate is probably peaking way higher than that. <clears throat> but when they put the heart rate more on consciously, for whatever reason, it seemed to be inhibiting them. They were like, you know, we had a hard job with some of those to really get them to push the pace. Because, well, oh my God, I can feel my heart beating. I'm like, well, that's a good thing. So <laughs> let's not worry too much about that. Um, you know, it's been, the only, and it's been interesting because we have had a few that have found it very difficult to push mm. really high. And we've had a couple of SNC coaches bring these people in saying, we can't get their heart rate above 170. And I'm like, really? I'm like, well, we'll manage that. And then, you know, and then it's kind of interesting. So, I mean, it, it, for me, it's been quite interesting the last few years having UFC guys and Bellator guys in and stuff. And you kind of look at just the <clears> difference <throat> in kind of who's pushing hard and who's not pushing hard and who's mm. coasting. And it, it would be quite surprising. People would be quite surprised that oh, people yeah. are coasting. But who are still doing it phenomenally oh, well. because they're just so the technically sound. You know, which then begs the question, like, yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's it. And that I think that's been the big thing for me with this whole thing is is like you know, we can do all this research for as long as we want, but the reality is we're we're working yeah. with outliers. You know, we're not working sure. with the general population. And those <laughs> outliers are pretty interesting within themselves because some of them aren't pushing particularly too high but are world champion yeah. level. They just have that ability, the time and the distance, the awareness, the spatial awareness, exactly. the cognition. And then you have the <clears> other kids. And I always say to kids, it's like, you may have two type of athletes, one that may be much more genetically gifted than you, but you can bridge the gap with the yeah. right amount of training because that athlete is going to be too lazy to take that next <clears> step <throat> up. And I think that's where sports science and strength conditioning can play a massive role with yeah. a lot of athletes. That especially in their beginning career, you can accelerate them really, really fast because you can say to them, look, we can give you the underlying foundations to catch you up with a lot of these really high level. And at that point, when you start to catch up, you need to step up the technical side of it. That's what yeah. you really need to get. So it's kind of, I think it's an interesting sport, combat sports from that that kind of perspective. I think it's, you know, the reality is, is every dog has his day in the ring. So you can prepare <laughs> someone as much as you want. But, you know, take them off the line at the wrong time. <laughs> yeah. Boom. It's good night. Yeah. The sprint protocols, coming back to that, you, you mentioned, okay, three to six minutes, uh, I guess, at close to peak heart rate per week. Do these, mm. do you need to do, I, I guess you mentioned over six minutes, you start to maybe blend uh, too much residual fatigue into technical training, but does there need to be, does something need to be changed in order to spur further adaptation? If you say, say you did this for a year, you know, is there something you need to do? Maybe more volume, more yeah, intensity? Yeah, you're going to have to mix. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, you got to mix it up. So we will, we will, we'll play around with resistance on the walk bike as well. Okay. So we'll change the resistance. Um, so, so we, we'll just really mix up the sprint times as well. So um, it, Hannah starts camp. Um, so she's back in camp now. Um, we're just waiting to see who the opponent's going to be. Um, so she's back on doing twenty seconds sprints uh, till like ten seconds, sixty second recovery. So we'll do that for the next two weeks, and then we'll start to change it. So she'll do tens, twenties, thirties, and we'll just play with it. Now, because she's at such a high elite level athlete, we, we can increase her sprints a little bit more than a normal athlete. So although we say one minute, we will give her sometimes a little bit more okay. than one minute just because of the way we want to periodize it out. And I'll, we'll play around with her. So um, so we'll increase the walk bike resistance a lot in her, her session. So she's getting a bit more power generation. Um, so we get a little bit more leg strength. Because one of the interesting things about the bike, one of the reasons I use the bike as well is 
Uh, one of the interesting things is when you do the movement assessment and then you have a bike that can measure symmetrical power and power ratios, you start to see that cross over. So interestingly, any athlete that comes in that has very bad asymmetry, and an, a, an, an asymmetrical issue to me is anything that's probably between 11 and 15% of a difference yeah. side to side. Under that, I don't really care about it, right? Because the sport is asymmetrical mm -hmm. anyway. So, but if they have quite a, a large issue left and right, if there's a massive disproportion on, on symmetry, you tend to see it on the bike. And if the bike's like an Excalibur bike, a really expensive load bike or even a watt bike, you start to see that difference in, in symmetry quite quite massively. And curiously, you start to see it in muscle oxygenation levels as well, that the muscle doesn't respond well. So, so the bike is pretty cool for that because you can educate the athlete on how to spin the bike a little mm. bit better, how to drive the legs, how to kind of extend uh, and, and stuff like that and, and, and kind of fix that asymmetry kind of nicely on those sprints. And because they're doing it three times a week, you're getting three sessions where they're concentrating and focus on cadence and pulling everything through, which has been massive for us then going back into strength work because it's helping us tidy mm. up a lot of things in a very kind of non-strengthy way. And then we're finding them, we're starting to get a lot more benefits in single leg work and it's all just coming together for us. So the bikes works for us in multiple levels, um, from the mitochondrial side, developing that right through to kind of pinpointing yeah. hip issues, length issues, stride. It's just, I mean, you can get so much from it, you know. People often say to me, do I need an expensive lab? And I'm like, no, I just go to the yeah. gym that's got a watt bike. And you can get, you can get so much data from that, it's, it's insane. You know, peak power, kind of recovery power, power drifts, recovery, heart rate recovery, symmetrical issues. You get a massive amount on that and very simple stuff. So it's one of the, I meant to say that. So that's one of the reasons we like to use the bike as well. It just gives us a lot of opportunities to do other things as well. Um, but other athletes will do different things as well. So we don't always do sprints. A lot of other athletes that maybe need to have a real high level, a lower body, we'll, we'll do more long grindy sessions. We'll make them do critical power modeling. We'll do make them hold certain wattage for, yeah. for longer periods of time because we do work a lot with cyclists as well. So, so, so although combat sports, we get this protocol, this sprint protocol could be used for any sport, but I would just say that if it was something like rugby, it was, it was soccer, it was kind of something else, we would probably change the protocols around a little bit to accommodate what they are looking for as well. It's like, it's yeah. not a one glove fits all. It's close, gotcha. but it's not perfect. Where, where, do, you, where so, do you fit these? So I guess, where do you fit these clear. in the training? You mentioned after technical training is one point. I think you mentioned in the morning um, where they do afternoon technical pads. I guess yeah. in terms of week structure, where do these usually fit around everything else? And maybe just an example of how, I guess, the whole week structure looks with technical training as well. So uh, if we take yeah. Hannah just now, because she's in camp, so she'll do our, so we will just sit in the Sunday and we will just blueprint it. So we, we basically, because an athlete, especially elite level, things can change, <laughs> media days come up, all that type of stuff. It's like a constant battle. Um, but one of the benefits of the sprints is it's very easy to fit them in because it's only six minutes of work in total yeah. with, with a recovery time. So so for Hannah, we will just look. So for any any elite athlete we're working with, it will be schedule dependent. We we do all our periodization on that Sunday for the week ahead. Um, we have a general overall for the eight weeks, but because she'll do media days or she'll do sponsorship days or whatever, it can yeah. go to shit quite a lot. So <laughs> Sunday's like the shit day where we sit and go, what's happening for next week? And we will plan. So she will do her sprints. One, probably beginning of the week, middle of the week, and the end of the week is tensive. when she does it, she yeah. spars a lot on a Saturday. So we avoid sparring day. So sparring nice. day, you know, for us, sparring day is a golden day. We don't want to have anything with it. And we want the following yeah. day to be recovery as well. So we'll try and probably cluster them Monday, Tuesday, and maybe like a Thursday. Mm -hmm. So that's the way it works for her. Um, it works different for others. Um, 
It just depends. Amateurs who are pretty religious will just say, we know they're in their sessions on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Yeah. So we'll try and get them in the Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Friday's tense in sparring for the outer amateurs on a Saturday as well. So we try and cluster all our spar around a Saturday to allow us to have the Friday off if need be and the Sunday off for recovery. <coughs> so so we're, we're quite big on that. Uh, and that, that works well for us. Other athletes, it's a bit of a challenge. Overseas athletes, if the schedule's busy, I'll just be tagging it in whenever we can get it. But I'll tend to say to them, look, if you can fit it in after a pad session or a technical session where it's not been too crazy, that'll be fine. Um, the other thing will be is if an athlete's cutting weight, um, then we will also look to bring them in in the evening and we'll do like a, a train high sleep low protocol which is our preferred method of weight cutting, um, just because we can deplete more glycogen in good high-intensity sprints, get a little bit of epoch, and then they can obviously sleep overnight, uh, low-carbohydrate, and we, we get that benefit of a bit of a weight cut that way as well. So we use it sometimes for, for managing um, mm. some weight cuts. We don't tend to have a lot of issues with weight cutting with our athletes, mm. in fairness. Uh, it's not something... It's, the, it's usually the first thing we put in place when a new athlete is getting yeah. right under control from day one so that it's not a big issue moving forward for us. Um, so, so yeah, so we, we use it for a, a variety of different ways, but um, amateurs, pretty regimented. Pros, yeah. it has a bit more flexibility, um, depending on their level. If they're like a pro that's not, that's early start career, it'll be a bit more regimented because most of them will still be mm. holding down day jobs. So a lot of these sprints end up being at night for a lot of these athletes because it's the only time they can get in. Like most of the UK boxers that are professional are probably still holding down yeah. some kind of day job. So, and uh, not everyone wants to go to a gym to do a super maximum <laughs> sprint at five sure. in the moment. So it can be a light rot. Yeah, but for us, it's pretty straightforward. We just say we need to have three of them. You can do Monday, Tuesday and Friday, or you can do Monday, Wednesday, Friday. It doesn't really matter too much. But do not mix it with sparring okay. days. That's, that's, the, that's the big rule. No, do not do them with sparring. Because um, we want sparring to be as fresh as possible. Um, we're quite strict on sparring that we want it carbohydrate fueled, ready. And we want a good quality sparring. It's hard to get good quality sparring sometimes. So we're very, very religious on that. It's very like, you know, that's that's the day where everything has to yeah. align kind of nice. So we, we stay away from it as much as possible. Nice. Um, no, it's so perfect. Yeah. Uh, I could keep asking you questions for uh, another another hour or two, but we'll, we'll end this here just so we don't go take all your time as well throughout your day. But if anyone's wanted to follow, follow, I guess you know what you're doing, your research, anything like that, where can they find you? So I'm on. I'm hopeless with social media. <laughs> I'm not very prolific on socials. Um, I'm very good with technology, but I just hate social media. Um, so Twitter is Andrew Usher, and Instagram, I think, is the Andrew Usher, and I'm floating around that high-performance group now because yep. of James. Um, I should blame James. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's probably the best place you can do. We've set up a new website, combatsportperformance.com, where the PDF is. Um, we're going to start to develop that that out and have some kind of educational nice. material. Um, we'll probably link that back to Aberty University as well. And people can look at Aberty University. There'll be some bits and bobs probably on there somewhere. Perfect. So, yeah. But I don't post a massive <laughs> amount. No, that's all good. But thanks for coming on, Andrew, and sharing all that knowledge with, with, with the, uh, the listeners. No, it's been a pleasure. But um, we'll be in touch for sure. And we'll have to get you on for round two of yeah, episode as well because there's obviously still a lot more to cover. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, excellent.